0: Restart. This episode of Be Real is brought to you by the exciting new season of the Emmy-nominated National Geographic series, Brain Games. It merges brain power with star power, as celebrities perform challenges that reveal the science behind what makes us tick. Host Keegan-Michael Key leads willing victims from Anthony Anderson to Kristen Bell to Mark Cuban through fun and highly entertaining interactive games, illusions, and social experiments to help them realize their untapped brain potential. It's the perfect TV series for the whole family, and Brain Games is for your consideration for outstanding hosted nonfiction series or special and all other eligible categories. For more information, visit natgeotv.com fyc. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solom pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard. We're here today to do a retrospective, but also like a first review for us on a very interesting movie from 1982 called *Cane River.
1: Well, it's sort of an interesting situation, not only what the movie is, but then the history of the property itself. This movie was made, yeah, in 1982, had some brief screenings at, like, local film festivals and stuff, including a premiere that was attended by Richard Pryor. Uh, But then, abruptly, before the film was released or distributed nationally, the director, Horace Jenkins, had a heart attack and died. And nobody else, including the financial backers of this movie, had the enthusiasm to really pursue anything without this force behind it of this writer director. Right. So it just, it just like hung out in a fucking garage, uh, in some film lab for 30 years. And it was considered like a lost piece of cinema. And then two years ago it was rediscovered. It was re put together and remastered, uh, and, yeah, brought up to date and released what well, was released sort of in a very small way in February. Uh, m- notably, they had a premiere at the Brooklyn Academy of Music near me. Yeah, Oscilloscope um, Labs but, distributed
0: it and they do all kinds of small, interesting indie uh, releases. Yeah.
1: But then, of course, like coronavirus hit and it like kind of lost its potential national distribution yet again.
0: Yeah, it's a movie that's had more than its fair share of misfortune in terms of just reaching audiences. Um, but hopefully the tables are turning here in late June, early July as Cane River arrives on the Criterion Channel and on Canopy, which is the the free app that connects to most public library card accounts. You can watch it in both places, and it comes about as part of uh, the streaming service's efforts to um, elevate and highlight Uh, black film, importantly, in these times, and especially overlooked black films like Cane River. I'm excited to say we've got Tiana Reed coming up. She wrote a terrific essay for the New York Review of Books about Cane River and how it interrogates notions of property and how black characters uh, engage with the outdoors in really interesting ways. It's a fascinating essay. You can find the link in the show notes, and that conversation is coming up. First no, and I want to remind you that Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. There's other terrific shows on the network like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, The Deep Focus Podcast. And you can you can, and we would love you, to subscribe to the feed wherever you get your shows, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. We appreciate you listening.
2: So are you from around here?
0: Well, in a way, yes. I've been away, but I'm originally from Kane River.
2: Wait, what are you? Some type of a horse trainer or
0: something? Uh, No, I'm not a horse trainer. I'm a poet. A writer.
2: I always picture a poet sitting at a table getting drunk and dying (laughs) of consumption.
0: Well, they're not exactly great, Marie.
2: You know something, Peter? You're different.
1: (laughs) When it debuted in 1982, Cane River was already a rarity. A drama by an independent black filmmaker financed by black patrons, and dealing with race issues untouched by mainstream cinema, says the New York Times.
2: i want to make you take a bath. Been riding that old smelly horse, and God
1: only knows what happened. And I don't want you to see him again, Maria. Like, do you hear me? Why, mommy, he's a nice guy. Because he's a matoir, that's
2: why.
0: Now, what does being a damn matoir have to do with it?
2: Your great-grandmother owned the Melrose Plantation, right? An African woman who owned slaves.
0: Because we don't know our own history. We don't know the value of land or the importance of owning it. And we're letting it slip right through our hands.
1: Rare and fantastic, its raw subject matter echoes in films of the present day, says RogerEbert.com. So this movie sort of opens in. Pretty grand Hollywood terms where you have this prodigal son in this like triumphant return to his home of Cane River, Louisiana, uh, with a very like late 70s, early 80s bus montage of him kind of thinking about swimming in the swimming in the, the swimming hole and hanging out with his friends and playing baseball right and then he comes home to this like celebrated triumphant return where they've made a sign for him at the bus station of course the guy at the bus terminal just says get a ticket south and like you're gonna have to probably walk from there or something because he's never heard of this place uh but it really sets a grand tone for the Peter character and like who he is, and of course, like Richard Romaine, who plays him is this like very handsome, very tall guy, and they point that out in the opening thing of people being like, "You're so tall." He's like, "I'm only uh, six one," but he seems even taller
0: because of the sort of the life experience that he's put on, being like a right. favorite son of this town, who then almost went to play football for the New York Jets. But then opted not to do it because he felt too much like a commodity, which is uh, some, certainly something you've heard athletes talk about before. But um, if we're just but like not look, in like
1: 1983,
0: when you're yeah, when you're thinking about uh, like just a, a movie character in 1982 being like, "Yes, I chose not to play professional sports because I wanted to go write poetry in my hometown." Is like right. a fascinating way to cut a character.
1: Well, And it's such an interesting opening, like, political note to hit that this guy is giving up what white society has decided, like, his role would be if he wanted to, like, quote, unquote, make it. And there's this whole interesting monologue later on where he talks about, like, affluent black people who have made it and how he kind of feels about that. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's really – it reminded me of the Jim Jarmusch movie Patterson where you, like, quickly look at this masculine character who – like quote unquote doesn't need like the the you know more grandiose things in life. He's like totally fine with driving a bus and writing his poetry and like seeing the beauty in everyday things. Totally, which is an interesting place to start. But then the movie it, like hits pretty quickly another note when he meets Maria and at this the uh, historical landmark of this plantation that his family once was not only they were slaves there and then they were also slave owners there we can get into that in a second but then this very interesting romance fuels the narrative forward um and uh tommy merrick is the the actress that plays maria
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you have a sort of uh star-crossed but conflict-ridden Romance story here that our guest Tiana Reed, who we'll hear from in a little bit, kind of compares to a Romeo and Juliet style. Um, oh, for sure. Like, you know, feuding families from way back and just fascinating and very specific commentary on um, Black Creole folks who uh, historically tried to cut out their own um, kind of identity. And they're like passing this book back and forth called The Forgotten People. Um, and Real a, book. A re- yeah a real book that um... well that's
1: the thing too uh peter's family is based on a real family uh and the, like the descendants of this particular woman who had a very interesting role in history in that she was a former slave and then when things turned for that industry shall we say she cozied up to the slave owners and sort of married into that family And it seems the book sort of highlights that. And they're always, I think that's a good reference to make is that they're they're constantly referencing this book, but what they're actually referencing is history. Mm -hmm. Like the history is there of this famous betrayal. It's almost like a Benedict Arnold kind of feel to this character, this grandmother who, or this great, great grandmother who looms large. And it's like, we all kind of know what she represents, but nobody can quite figure out like exactly how she played it.
0: Horace Jenkins was also a, a documentarian And some of the very best moments in the movie Come from his uh, You know Just observing The the people and the nature And like creating these little montages Where you wouldn't think that they would be um, In this movie In terms of like just the way people interact in church Or the way people interact when they're working A nine to five in this really small town Or the way that people interact When you drive into New Orleans for the first time Um Those are some of the best moments in the movie. Um, Other sort of style things to note uh, would be the soundtrack, which is... Unbelievable. (laughs) My immediate reference point was like George Benson. Um, Sure. Like early 80s or like George Benson or like sort of late Smokey Robinson where just like everything turned into this like... Everything was a romantic ballad and if it was a du- right. if it was a duet fine but like you had to sing you had to say the word love 40 times in the song to get it right on the record
1: you you had to say the kind of love that that particular city right. uh is evocative of yeah there's a little bit of like hall and oats in there too in sort of the enjoyable cheese of right. some of them yeah
0: which is a, fu- a funny contrast to how naturalistic some of, like, the, a lot of the rest of the movie is.
1: Yeah. Well, naturalistic, too. And I think you bring up some interesting points about, like, the visual style of it. It's one of those movies that you can tell, like, wasn't made with $100 million. It was oh, a movie no that the charm of it is the things that were almost accidentally captured, you know, when they're shooting a church scene and, you know, the people there aren't actors like the people in the cl- in the close-ups are actors but like the wide panning shots this is just like a church he captured from the local area and i mean the production was so based on that idea of really capturing uh the cane river thing
0: yeah we should say that richard romaine was not an actor he was just from the area and had the look and was a former football player right yeah, uh, Tommy Merrick was a was a working New York actor who, she talks in one of the interviews that's attached to the movie on the Criterion channel, how um, she was called in to replace um, Patrice Poitier, who is Sydney Poitier's yeah, Sydney daughter. Yeah, Sidney Poitier's
1: daughter. Yeah. Um, but this is what I love about just like filmmaking in general is you know, of course you can like put a green screen up and put anything in the background and like make it plausible enough, but there's something so charming and wonderful and alive and warm about seeing two people who are like on a horse and you know that it's all real and you don't quite know like how it's going to go. Right. Cause it's like, a horse. everything is risky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a horse. It's a real animal. It's not like a digital green screen horse. It's a real horse. Uh, Merrick talks about in the interview, the fact that like she promised the director that she could ride a horse when she absolutely could not. So some of the, you know, more tenuous moments, shall we say, are probably wholly unscripted, as is, frankly, a lot of this movie. But I don't even know that a movie like this would even come out then like in a big way. You know, they probably just didn't feel like fighting that good fight after Jenkins had passed because like it is such an obscure seeming thing by 1983 movie standards. But I really think there is something just so like charming and confident, almost the way that like Richard Romaine is confident on screen. Like this movie's confident that the underlying story here is compelling enough that you'll like you'll get it from mm-hmm. the big sort of emotional arc of the more romantic side of this narrative. Like you'll get it. And if you don't get it, you're there for the love story and you're in a place that exists.
0: Right. And it's such an interesting time too, for like black American film. Cause you're coming out of the seventies and out of sort of the quote unquote exploitation era, which of course is taken over in vast part by white film. Makers and uh, you know, has its has its issues. But then you're still a couple years away from like you're still three or four years away from the first Spike Lee movie, you're before Purple Rain, you're before Eddie Murphy. This movie feels like it's existing outside of uh mainstream Hollywood arcs in so many ways.
1: Yeah. I mean a lot of the writing around this has talked about how it doesn't make a ton of sense you know, why this movie would be made. But then it also, there is a sense to how it was released in its sort of limited way that people of this community, like, loved this movie, you know? And Richard Pryor, like, made a play to try to have it released, which, you know, went to nothing. But I think there's something so fascinating about, you know, almost like an early regional filmmaker here. I mean, the way in which, you know, directors we've talked about, like Gus Van or, like... Yeah, Link Later, Kelly Reichert, people like that. Right. That's a good
0: point. Let's turn now to my conversation with Tiana Reed, who was kind enough to hop on the old Zoom with me and unpack this concept of the blackout doors that she cited in her piece on Kane River. Our guest today is an essayist, critic, and poet whose writing has appeared in the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review, The Nation, and many other publications. In late June, she wrote a fantastic essay about Kane River for the New York Review of Books. Tiana Reed, welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, so let's first just talk about seeing this movie. Um, did you get to see it at the Brooklyn Academy of Music?
2: I did, yeah. I actually saw it in February on the big screen.
0: Um, What was that like?
2: It was, I mean, like, it was a different experience than I imagine how most people are watching it now um, because it was the middle of winter. It was like around Valentine's Day. So it was just like a really cute situation. You know, it was just so exactly what I needed on that day. And it was just, You know, the film's so beautiful in terms of the nature aspect of it, too. So it was a kind of respite from New York winter in that moment.
0: What did you know about it going in? What did you what did you expect?
2: I didn't know much about it. I wasn't expecting it to be as sort of lighthearted as it was, um, because I think um, reading the synopsis and also um, in terms of it being a sort of recovered cultural object that was sort of lost to history for a while, you know, that sort of imbues it with this kind of heaviness and this importance, um, which, you know, you could argue is just sort of like could be a marketing ploy but but the point is the point is is that I was expecting it to be just a lot more um a lot darker and I was just not expecting like a straight up romance film you know Mm -hmm.
0: yeah there's definitely like some verbal throwdowns but the stakes are not like crazy or harrowing really
2: yeah, the stakes are pretty much, are we going to keep dating or not? <laughs> <laughs> but, but obviously, like, there's a lot more to it in terms of how they're relating to one another and the kind of intellectual conversations that they're having and the way the past is making an imprint on their lives. But, but in terms of the actual drama, it, it is very sort of like every day. It's very sort of like what you worry about in your early 20s, you know?
0: Sure. Yeah. I think you say in your piece that the movie kind of effortlessly like breaks the seal between the romance and the issues that it wants to engage with. Um, How do you think it's able to do that?
2: So you were talking before about the sort of heated um, arguments that happen. And I think the weight of the afterlife of slavery gets verbalized gets verbalized in that way but and like it's very kind of like there's people raising their voices and whatnot and then it will there there will be like a switch like i watched it last night and again and there was there will be like a quick switch and like you know peter will then be like okay like let's go or you know what i mean mm-hmm. so sure. there's this way in which um the film itself and i think this has to do with um the sort of amateur acting and there was a lot of improv involved um So a lot of it is sort of just, like, you get the feel like you're just going for a ride and, like, going with the flow, Um, and I think that's how it's able to sort of, you know, really toe the line between, um, yeah, the the serious repercussions um, of you know histories of property and slavery and then just you know two young people two young hot people wanting to get together it also like really helps that they look great and that their clothes are really cool tremendous um, and there's just a lot of style um to it
0: how did you like the soundtrack
2: <laughs> oh my god um
0: I- it was a lot
2: it's a lot, and I was actually like I couldn't figure out how or if I was going to talk about the soundtrack in the in the review
0: uh-huh.
2: um, because it's it's pretty it's pretty heavy handed, and um, yeah, I mean I think that's part of the reason you were talking about like um, the fact that it it came out um, as a sort of artifact that also allows you to kind of. Laugh at it in
0: a way Because it is the 1980s Tiana why do you think that this um, Very like Regional Slice of history from a specific time Is so like Discussable and debatable Whether on you know in some comment section now Or just like enough to Orient a whole movie around
2: Right On the one hand It's very specific the questions are uh, real and true, yada yada, but then also, if we're thinking about um, black people in general on an intramural level even if even if you're unfamiliar with um, Louisiana, um, there are these sort of similar questions around. What real? What what version of Christianity do you belong to? What color is your skin? Um, you know, are you middle class? And all of these sort of like really like deep variations within um, Black culture in the U.S. and and you know outside of the U.S. And a lot of Black film deals with not necessarily only the intramural aspects, but also some sort of like outside, some sort of like white. American culture that is then Mm -hmm. the antagonist. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I like this movie so much is because it's really about, um, what are we, what are the complexities and, um, conflicts really that, that we have dealt with and that we deal with today. And like, yeah, and it's around, Really, you know, land, land, land ownership, ownership of slaves, um, things that have a obviously have a huge history, um, but we don't necessarily associate with someone like um, Lequent. Is that mm-hmm. her name? Yeah.
0: To unpack sort of the the black outdoors as a as a concept, you describe it as a paradox of sorts. Um, What's paradoxical about it? So,
2: I mean, I can't take any credit for this concept. I um, was first introduced to it through a conversation between two of my favorite thinkers, Cydia Hartman and Fred Moten. And it was basically this working group at Duke University um, that was uh, organized by... Sarah Jane Servanak and J. Cameron Carter. And the paradoxical element to me and what I was thinking about there is being inside of a structure or a sense of confinement, but having like a knowledge of the outside through being inside. And so there are either, you know, you can think about it in many different contexts. You can think about it through incarceration, you can think about it through segregation, you can think about it through, you know, citizenship in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, does, is there a way in which that sort of forced, um, insideness allows you to imagine a different kind of outside. So, so there's that aspect to it, but then also like, you know, black outdoors is also just about like, you know, simply put being black, being outside mm-hmm. being in the sort of in a rural or pastoral or um, country like setting. And um, again, though, there's still that paradox of um what is what is our relationship to land you know um, historically we've been forced to um, work this land we were stolen from you know Africa and these are the i'm I'm like to- toying with the narratives that are already present in the film you mm-hmm. know you know is the outdoors is that like a free place for us or um, are we sort of burdened with you know something Fred Moten would say like that sound of like, I can hear people like running away through the fields yeah. when I'm, when I'm like on a hike, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so mm-hmm. there, there's this constant, um, yeah, paradox between, you know, being inside and outside and neither has a sort of valuation of, of just being good or bad. They're all sort of like wrapped up in, um, all these complexities.
0: How does, uh, freedom of movement tie into this because the 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 movie gives peter and maria um almost like a, a comical variety of modes of transit um i mean horses horses are the the big important one but there's also boats convertibles buses a golf cart makes a sudden comedic appearance um <laughs> but yeah how does just their freedom to constantly be going wherever they want tie into this theory
2: Yeah, I mean, I love, you know, cars. They're also running, they're swimming, they're walking. There's so much movement. And I love the way you frame the question because it's like, you know, this sense of transit. And, you know, I would just ask, and I don't have an answer to the question, but like, where where are they going? You know what I mean? Where are they, are they really trying to get somewhere um, in the film? And I think, you know, I mean, to me, the, the way that they are constantly moving is about fugitivity, right? It's about this desire to just escape, to get out. Um, And you see it even with um, Maria, Maria's brother, right? Like he's punching in, he's punching out, he's working, he's working, he's working. And then he's like drinking to escape and he's like drinking to get out of his conditions. And um, so, yeah, I see that, I see all of the movement Sort of in line with especially um, Maria's sort of um, desire to like get out, get out of here and her desire to run away, you know, also like hide from her mom.
0: (laughs) On the subject of land ownership, um, it's something that Peter is fixated on. And, um, and about land that's been stolen from his family. And then there is the scene in New Orleans where um, the lawyer he goes to to fight this land theft gives this long speech about how it's one of uh, inequality just in land ownership is one of the biggest disadvantages that black Americans face. Um, that message is coming on pretty heavy from one side of the film. But I'm wondering if you think that the larger film endorses that point of view.
2: Yeah, you know, I want to say no, because... You know, on the surface, it is this sort of like liberal, very liberal narrative, this narrative of like black empowerment, black economic advancement, sort of like that black capitalism and 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 you know, I think in the intervening um years since that film, we've seen more more heavily the failures um of that narrative, you know what I mean, and I think um so so i think that yeah there's there's peter doing that but then i do think that maria's sort of like um her opinion on you know that scene where where he goes where they both go to his old land and the house has been torn down and maria is like Maria is like, we wouldn't have $150,000 to begin to lose, right? And so Maria is also brutally aware of the origins of land ownership. So I I don't think that the film itself espouses sort of Peter's sense of things. Um, But I mean, I like read a lot into it and I'm like, what if, like, land weren't owned? Like, how can we think about the commons? And, but that's sort of just a really strong reading, I think.
0: Tiana, what did you think of how Horace Jenkins' documentary background comes across in this movie and, and what it adds?
2: There is a way that because it's really centered around a book, I could have seen this in a kind of documentary Format in terms of like interviews, um, I could have seen it like adapted in a different way, um, sort of less focus on the couple form. Yeah, I don't know if you. I was actually really curious about what you what you thought.
0: I got the sense, really limited sample size, of course, a tragically limited sample size. Um, but those were that is the mode he was most comfortable in because I felt like some of the what came across to me as like the actual very canny filmmaking moments were in the documentary space. Like I think in the montage of Brother Mathis having his day at work, Jenkins actually uses the same footage of the bartender twice, um, as if to be like, this is a complete loop and who who the hell can tell. And then the 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 really kind of unremarked upon thing of the um congregate member in the Catholic and Baptist church both napping. It feels like a very found moment that somebody with documentary instincts. And those were those people actors? I don't know. Um so I feel like he was more comfortable in that space.
2: Yeah, totally. Um even just, you know, the the opening scene there and there are a lot of um moments in between where they're just it's long, yeah, montages, sunsets, um nature and it's just yeah it's sort of like a, a very intense setting of the scene that is almost ethnographic mm. and less sort of like less sort of like these this this shot is is telling a story and is important for the narrative it's more just like you need to see everything that's going on
0: this would be a really hard question but Noah brought it up when we recorded the review part um this really feels like a a first film and in a more fortunate world it you know you're you've got 15 Horace Jenkins films and in 2020 you look back and you're like oh let's check out his first film like what a what an interesting thing where you could see him working with amateur actors and going to a place that was personal f- for him because of his relationships um I wonder if were was there were there particular elements of the movie if you could sort of project of like I feel like he was just starting to roll with this idea or this method of storytelling and I would have loved to see that develop over time
2: I mean one thing that I just would have loved to see more of is the the sort of intramural intracommunal um black storytelling like you know sort of plainly put um I've been watching a lot of Criterion movies lately and Mm. like some which I haven't seen for the first time you know I just was reminded I have seen it before but I was reminded about like how much like Watermelon Woman which is of the same 80s I believe or 90s maybe but but it it has the whole story is about this white woman and Mm. and I think um and I think um, that was sort of like the intramural aspect was is something we're starting to see again more now. Um, but it's so different from the like very popular Spike Lee version of, of Black film. Not a spectacularized version of Black life. And I would have loved to see more of his films.
0: Yeah. I, I want to pick up on this idea for a second though that you brought up. Because I, I remember... Wesley Morris and Jenna Wertham on their podcast um were I think it was in 2018 and they were listing off movies like uh Spotting* and The Hate You Give and Sorry to Bother You and they were kind of espousing like even movies that they liked they felt like kind of an exhaustion with the, these movies either intentionally or unintentionally fell into a stance of having to explain blackness to a white audience um and I wonder, I see the irony of this question, of course, but what is it like for you? Explain it to me, the white guy. Um, what is it like for you when you watch a movie about intramural black life that just doesn't have any of that? Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, it. I, I, it's just, it's refreshing and inspiring also. I mean, I think that, you know, that question around... Um, having to explain to white people or to an establishment or institution is something that people deal with, in, something I deal with in my everyday life, something people are dealing with a lot right now and something that feels inescapable in a lot of ways. So to see a sort of model for how to do that as someone, as a writer and as, um, you know, a film lover, like it is just, there aren't very many models for how to do that um because and and you know in a way like you know the film paid the price for that you Mm. know (laughs) no one watched it
0: deemed not marketable
2: exactly and so and so um but i think that's sort of more um illegible you know opaque kind of storytelling or things that you know not everyone necessarily is going to get. Um, That's what makes the film so uh, exciting to me and so refreshing to watch.
0: My last question for you, Tiana, as a poet and a a critic, what do you think of Peter's poetry? (laughs) Oh God. (laughs)
2: It's so, I mean, it's so corny and just, I mean, it, he's so, he's less in, interested in poetry than in the, the like, figure of being a poet, you
0: know? That's definitely true.
2: Even Maria, like, makes fun of him, like, you know, you're just sitting and drinking wine and he's, like, writing underneath a tree. Yeah, I would say um, he should also, um, he should maybe get a reader.
0: Sure. <laughs> Well, Tiana, thank you so much for your time and and, and talking about the movie and and sharing your writing on it with the world. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you.
2: Thank you. This is so fun.
0: Well, we thank... Tiana reads so much for her time and her wonderful writing. Go seek out that piece if you uh, if you haven't read it. It uh, illuminates a lot of things about this film. All right, Noah. Let's continue and wrap up our discussion of Kane River. Let's talk about the acting a little bit, can we? Please. I think that Tommy Merrick is pretty good. Uh, oh, yeah. I I think hers is the performance of the movie. Um I see that she maybe only... IMDb says she only worked in another movie like one more
1: time though. Um, But she she, claims like a longer theater background uh, in interviews and stuff. That would make sense.
0: She seems... She has a comfort with um, both like the emotions that she's supposed to play and the conflict where she can... You get the sense when her mom is yelling at her of like, you cannot see... Peter anymore she's able to maintain And straddle that line of both being Really owing something to her Mother and the way that she was raised and the College that she's getting sent to In New Orleans and also Of course being that you know Early 20 something who may Have found the love of her life and She's also really good at like more than A few um, Comedic bits in this movie like There's this long kind of drawn out thing where like Peter has this shitty truck And she's like, okay, fine, I'll ride with you. And then she kind of sticks her head back into frame. She's like, one more question, Mister. Does this truck have air conditioning? (laughs) She's she's very skilled with the both the comedy and the sentiment.
1: No, but I think some of the acting, especially well, because this ultimately becomes this very like feminist read on independent kind of independence kind of movie. Yeah. And so like I think that that is also enabled by some really fabulous performances, Tommy Merrick included, but also like the mother Carol Sutton uh, is Mrs. Mathis is so like her anger and her, like her bubbling frustration of like, I, I raised you a certain way so you could succeed and you got into this college and now you're giving it up all for a guy. Like, what are you doing?
0: So we find out if you watch some interviews that that scene where they have that big blow up, there wasn't a scene. There was no script. So, like, yeah. Horace Jenkins just kind of put the actors in there and was like, well, this is the scene where you got to get really mad. And there is something interesting about the way that Ms. Mathis cannot express like a coherent like why are these things of being with peter and going to college like why are they diametrically opposed she can't put that into words because there's no script but maybe she also can't put that into words because the character is so overcome by the weight of tradition like it truly is a Mm zero-sum option and it kind of works
1: right and i love the idea too that the mother and really her daughter uh hold it against their dad for dying like in his 40s it's the same as being left they say yeah it's the same as being left as, as departing at a young age but another great thing about that scene too, that climactic moment is there's this moment where brother just like raises his hand to like get something in. And then like nobody, two of the women don't even look at him and they keep going with the scene. It's such a good, for such a snaky kind of like hyper masculine character, he's been in like the previous two scenes. Right. Like this one really without, by not including him, puts him in his place. It's
0: true. Yeah. Yeah. On that point, it made me feel like the the one scene that I feel like the movie is really missing is it's very conspicuous when they go to New Orleans and she's going for her sort of orientation and sign up at Xavier. And he's going to see a lawyer to see if they can, you know, figure out the chicanery that happened around his... Uh, grandmother's will and maybe get this piece of land back and the fact that we follow him for a scene that I think is important for what this movie has to say about um, black people and property in the US but like a scene of her at Xavier uh, orientation could have been extremely meaningful for kind of establishing like uh, real like parody within the movie so while a lot of this movie's Charm comes from surmounting The limitations it has It also does have that like late 70s Early 80s like Movie made for no money Goofiness about it like Richard Romaine To his credit seems like a really sweet guy from the Interviews he's really trying But I did you notice that he I think in order to seem natural And seem comfortable tends to Start every sentence with like an interjection He'll just be like Hey I i know
1: where we could go to lunch or right and there's a couple of funny like goofy pickup lines that like don't quite work right you know like when he first meets her um but those are i don't know i think for the most part they like have a pretty compelling chemistry i
0: think they have chemistry i think like it's just like it should be said that a lot of time when you're watching richard romaine you're watching someone trying to remember his lines
1: oh yeah yeah but in the most charming way possible. Sure,
0: yeah, that's that's what non actors would do if you put them on camera. Try to remember their lines for
1: sure. The one like real goofy moment I think this movie has is when we're right after the bit about him being like, "Oh, I'll give you a ride on my horse." He goes back to the the tree where he hung up his horse, and suddenly he's got a second horse. Right, but he like only rode one horse out there so where he materialized that second (laughs) horse from yeah the only real disappointment i would say about this movie is that horace jenkins didn't quite have the technical prowess to fully deliver the story that he's clearly capable of writing sure and i think seeing later stuff uh would of course been eye-opening and you know put him in the canon as well it's an incredible debut Shall I remind people how we rate movies on this particular podcast, Chance?
0: On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't
1: care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. once more, we play our dangerous game.
0: Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to re-watch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. <laughs> Bad, bad
0: movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master.
1: Got all that? Time for a rating. I think, despite its budget restraints, um, its being a gazillion years old, uh, being pretty goofy starring actors you won't recognize this movie has like a ton of heart a ton of warmth and is a really interesting docu-realist look at the very fascinating piece of american history um and a circumstance that i'd never considered before uh to a state other than new orleans i've never really spent any time in um so i think it's it's a good good I think that's
0: true. I mean, I think there are, um, like we said, there are very goofy things about it. The soundtrack reminds me of my dad's tape deck and his Dodge Dynasty circa 1993. He absolutely would have put on some George Benson. Um, But it is a real testament to how much you can do with few resources when you are interested in something that is specific and really deep, um, and you don't need money to explore the depths of uh, like really distinct socio economic and racial history. Um, and for me, anyway, like this is why I watch um, you know art house movies and like. Obs- obscure indie movies when I can And international movies which is to go to places And hear perspectives that uh, Never make it through the Hollywood Studio system um, And this movie does that in both a, like a Digestible way and a way that gives You like no Easy answers because if you've been Steeped in this world you grew up in this World like there are no easy answers to the question Of whether Peter and Maria Get to be together And live happily ever after based on how their families Have related Um
1: i'm with you it's a good good fantastic yeah i love that the last note there literally uh sort of questioning you know whether they're going to be together whether they're not going to be together um but it is almost open and open-ended enough that it uh allows this sort of guttural like yeah <laughs> yeah the last moment like the of the last, movie the last moment of the movie which i think is a, a triumph it's a triumphant uh, scream it's great
0: thanks so much to tiana reed for guesting on the show thank you buddy for uh watching this obscure but really interesting movie that i would that it i was would recommend. my pleasure
1: be safe be well talk soon